It's a great honor for me to be here at the Empire Club of Canada today, which is arguably the most famous and historically relevant speakers podium to have ever existed in Canada. It has offered its podium to such international luminaries as Winston Churchill, Ronald Reagan, Audrey Hepburn, the Dalai Lama, Indira Gandhi, and closer to home, from Pierre Trudeau to Justin Trudeau. Literally generations of our great nation's leaders, alongside with those of the world's top international diplomats, heads of state, and business and thought leaders. It is a real honor and a distinct privilege to be invited to speak to the Empire Club of Canada, which has been welcoming international diplomats, leaders in business and in science and in politics. When they stand at that podium, they speak not only to the entire country, but they can speak to the entire world. Good afternoon, and welcome to the 120th season of the Empire Club of Canada. My name is Sal Rubani. It's an honor to stand before our community as chair of the Board of Directors of the Empire Club. I want to acknowledge that I'm hosting this meeting today on the traditional and treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit and the homelands of the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. We encourage everyone to learn more about the traditional territory in which you work and live. November 8th, is a national day for recognition and remembrance of more than 200 years of military service by First Nation, Métis, and Inuit communities. Today, we come together to honor Indigenous veterans and pay tribute to their contribution to Canada's military history. There's so much that we don't know. So many great, unbelievable acts of bravery, integrity, courage, and dedication of Indigenous peoples who served in the Canadian Armed Forces. Indigenous people have answered the call each and every time, the First World War, Second World War, and the Korean War. Just in the First World War, more than 4,000 Indigenous people enrolled in the military. It was a remarkable response, and in some areas, one in three able-bodied men would volunteer. Key battles in the War of 1812 were won thanks to contributions of brave First Nation and Métis people. Some earned the title of coat talkers for delivering military intelligence in Cree so that the enemy couldn't understand it. Thousands of Indigenous people still serve in the Canadian Armed Forces. One of the roles at the Empire Club is to inspire learning and dialogue. As a trusted forum for conversations that matter, we provide a platform for our community to improve their expertise, reflect on important issues, and get inspired. Learning about the courage, the sacrifice, and the stories of Indigenous people serving in the military is one of the most important contributions we can make to acknowledging their contribution. So please engage with our esteemed speakers through the Q&A under the video player today. The Empire Club of Canada is a not-for-profit organization. And we'd like to recognize our sponsors who generously support the club and make these events possible and complimentary for our online viewers to attend. Thank you to our season sponsors, Amazon Web Services, AWS, Bruce Power, and Hydro One. I also want to recognize the Empire Club's distinguished past presidents, board of directors, staff, and volunteers 
thank you for your contributions in making this event a success. To take a closer look at Indigenous veterans' contribution, it is a great honour for the Empire Club to welcome two extraordinary individuals today, John Moses and Tim O'Lone. They're incredible fountains of knowledge from the impressive Indigenous participation in Canada's military efforts over the years. We will hear from a historical and personal perspective as our speakers talk about the wartime service of extended family and go beyond numbers and statistics to share touching and inspiring stories of the people who serve this country. Stories that speak about service and honor. This commitment to stay true to principles of courage, integrity, camaraderie, and putting others in front of oneself. The commitment to enlist and wear the uniform. Having that moral compass, strength to endure systemic racism and discrimination during their service and also after they returned to Canada. The strength to keep on going when their contribution was not acknowledged, when their sacrifice remained unrecognized. Indigenous people's stewardship of this land, their profound cultural heritage, and continued connection to these territories are essential parts of our identity. So today is an opportunity to recognize the immense contributions and diverse cultures that First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people have made to our society to honor the progress that has been made towards reconciliation and acknowledge that work remains to be done. Let us remember the Indigenous peoples who have served and those who continue to serve. Let us honor them and acknowledge their contribution. Let us reflect on their sacrifices and their past mistreatment. Let us make today an opportunity toward reconciliation. Let us be inspired by their courage their commitment, and the enduring value of honor and service that they embodied so well, lest we forget. I'd now like to welcome our esteemed speakers, John Moses, Director, Repatriation and Indigenous Relations, Canadian Museum of History, and Tim O'Lone, CEO and founder of the Reconciliation Speakers Bureau. Welcome. John, I may please take a minute to briefly introduce yourself. Well, good afternoon. Thank you, Nyawe. I certainly do appreciate this opportunity and this platform to address the, the Empire Club of Canada. My name is John Moses. I'm a member of the Delaware and Upper Mohawk Bands from the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory near Brantford, Ontario, and I am the Director of Repatriation and Indigenous Relations at the Canadian Museum of History here in Gatineau, Quebec on the unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. I'm also a Canadian Forces veteran, having served during the Cold War era as a member of the COM Research 291 Signals Trade. So thank you very much, Yahweh. Thanks, John. Tim, please let our, our audience know a little bit about yourself. Good morning or good afternoon. Um, I don't even know. <laughs> uh, my name is Tim Olona. I'm a 10-year veteran. I'm uh, proud to have served from 1983 to 1993. I'm humbled to share the stage with John. He's been a dear friend. Um, I am Dene from the Northwest Territory. I, too, am in Ottawa on the traditional territory of the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabeg uh, Algonquin uh, Nation. I'm really, really humbled to be here and uh, just a uh, uh, humbled to be able to uh, share space with so many amazing Canadians. And, uh, I look forward to our conversation. Masicho, thank you very much. 
Thank you. Thank you, Tim, and thank you both. It's an honor to have you both here. To start off today, uh, John will kick off with a presentation titled Beyond the Restless Wave. John, the platform is yours. Well, thank you. Yahweh. Sego Skenagawaga, Swadis Moses, young gats, Ganyatsi Angwahoi, Ganyatsi Hodnushoni, Ganyangahega, Tano Lenela Nape. Again, my name is John Moses. I'm a member of the Delaware and Upper Mohawk bands from the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory near Brantford, Ontario. And that's where both my parents were born and raised, and where the majority of my extended family members continue to live and work. Now, my father was the late Russ Moses. He was a residential school survivor, a naval veteran of the Korean War, an Air Force veteran of the Cold War, and a public servant whose various appointments included as Deputy Commissioner General of the Indians of Canada Pavilion at Montreal's Expo 67, which venue today is recognized as being a watershed in Indigenous self-representation before national and global audiences. My mother is Helen Montour Moses. She followed her own mother, Edith Anderson Montour, into the nursing profession. And Helen was a founding member of the original Canadian Indian Nurses Association back in the 1970s, for which work she received her eagle feather. Now, I'm telling you all of this so that you know exactly who I am and where I'm coming from in all respects. And finally, again, I also want to acknowledge our Indigenous veterans and elders and the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg, from which I'm joining you today in Gatineau, Quebec. Now, historically, wherever the geographic, economic, and political factors so dictated, the British Crown and other imperial powers in North America all sought to include Indigenous allies as part of their overall military and strategic alliances. For their own part, Indigenous peoples and groups either accepted, rejected, or modified these overtures in accordance with their own objectives. 20th century overseas military service by Indigenous peoples from Canada was contentious and fraught with the potential for unintended outcomes, both for those on the front lines and for those at home. Quite aside from the possibility of death or injury for combatants, of course, for those at home, these unanticipated consequences also included family and marital breakdown as parents, older siblings, and other role models and caregivers departed for war work or for their own military service, the co-committant transfer of at least some of the children involved to residential schools, challenges to traditional political authority, and the loss of land as portions of some reserves received were seized for military purposes, and the forced agricultural labor of Indigenous children at Canada's Indian residential schools, as at least some of the schools were converted to meet civilian food production needs during the wartime emergency. All of these outcomes were experienced by my own family members to varying degrees. Now, in respect of residential schools, many of the schools had been run along military lines to begin with, with the exceptionally austere living conditions under even normal and routine peacetime conditions being akin to military service. Many Indigenous families over this uh, span of generations share this history of both residential school and later military service. There were thus combined wartime and multi-generational residential school legacies that continue to negatively impact Indigenous families and communities to the present day. This has certainly been the case in my own extended family over the generations. 
No, notwithstanding that under Canada's colonial Indian Act legislation, they were actively denied the full rights and benefits of Canadian citizenship at home. Indigenous troops of the two world wars were at the very forefront in fulfilling abroad what is arguably that most onerous and profound obligation of citizenship and sovereignty in donning uniform and bearing arms against the nation's enemies. It must be emphasized that Indigenous military service was never undertaken lightly nor out of some quaint or naive sense of patriotism to the Crown. The question of whether to support Canadian and Imperial military efforts was divisive within Indigenous communities and families across the country, and even amongst those who did volunteer for service, their political motivations varied greatly, spanning the material to the political. Some, like many settler Canadians, were attracted by the perceived material benefits and advantages of regular food, pavement, payment, clothing, and shelter. At Six Nations at the time of the Great War, some perceived themselves historically in the vein of Joseph Brandt and His Majesty's Indian allies. Others were more future-oriented and felt that, the, that come the victorious peacetime that no one doubted, the fact of their recent military service overseas would provide them greater leverage in advocating for Six Nations rights on the national and world stage. Now, I want to state that I would not presume to speak of any community other than my own, which again is the Six Nations of the Grand River, and within that I would not presume to speak of any families other than my own, which matrilineally are the Montour and Anderson families, and which patrilineally is the Moses family. By utilizing poetry, letters, diaries, telegrams, and photographs, and the traditional knowledge and oral histories of the extended Moses family and the extended Montour and Anderson families, this presentation traces the wartime service and ultimate fate of selected Six Nations band members, all of whom are family to me. So what follows is a highly personalized account of Six Nations contributions to allied and British empire war efforts of the 20th century with a unique commentary on the fortunes of war from an unfiltered firsthand indigenous perspective. And if we could go to the next slide, please. Now, despite the fact that the governing Six Nations Confederacy hereditary chiefs and clan mothers espoused a stance of diplomatic neutrality at the outbreak of the Great War, more than 300 band members volunteered to serve. Such a response was a challenge in itself to the traditional authority of the Confederacy system. Of the more than 300 who volunteered, 292 finally shipped overseas. Of these, 38 were killed in action, reported missing, or died of wounds or illness. With losses exceeding one in 10, the Six Nations troops of the First World War were thus literally decimated. Upon their return home following the war, some of the Six Nations veterans assumed leadership of a pre-existing reform movement called the De Horners. The De Horner mandate was to remove the Confederacy chiefs and clan mothers from power and to introduce band council elections consistent with the Indian Act of that era on the basis of one male elector, one vote. The De Horners were relatively few in number, but well organized by virtue of their military training and experience. In the hyper-nationalistic and patriotic environment of post-war Canadian society, they emphasized the differences between themselves as newly returned war veterans versus the neutral stance of the Confederacy chiefs and its supporters. 
They actively colluded with the Dominion government to achieve their end, which was in fact accomplished in 1924. Ever since, there have been those individuals, extended families and lineages at Six Nations that continue to support government by Confederacy chiefs and clan mothers versus those that support Indian Act style band council elections. Others remain apolitical. Now, notwithstanding any of the foregoing, Six Nations and Indigenous individuals and families in general were apparently prepared to support the Crown War efforts and the notion of a strong and united empire and dominion, so long as that same Crown demonstrated respect of Aboriginal and treaty rights in return. Ultimately, Six Nations troops' individual service in wartime was in the context of the historic Covenant Chain Wampum Accord meaning diplomatic partnerships and peace and military alliance during war. My intention in offering the following family prof profiles is to highlight the diversity of the Six Nations military and wartime experience during the 20th century. So pictured here is my maternal grandmother, Edith Anderson Mentour. She was born in 1890 and passed away in 1996, a few days short of what would have been her 106th birthday. As a young woman, my grandmother Edith was determined to become a nurse. Unfortunately, Indian Act restrictions of her era prevented her from pursuing higher education without the threat of loss of her legal Indian status and registered band membership. Her strategy around this was to pursue her training in the United States. She was living and working as a public health nurse and a school nurse in New York City when the United States entered the Great War in 1917. Volunteering for duty with the U.S. Army Nurse Corps of the American Expeditionary Force, she served overseas in France at U.S. Army Base Hospital No. 23 in Vittel before returning to the U.S. and eventually to Canada in 1919, by which time the former Indian Act restrictions were no longer in force. Returning to the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory, she married, raised her own family, including my mother Helen, and continued nursing and working as a midwife and nurse on the reserve until finally retiring in the 1960s. Recognized now as the first Indigenous registered nurse in Canada, Grandmother Edith was a pioneer of Indigenous health care, although these same sources typically neglect to include that it was the provisions of Canada's racist Indian Act legislation of her era that provided obliged her to initially pursue her calling in another country. By virtue of her allied veteran status under Canada's 1917 Wartime Elections Act and the Military Voters Act, she was also the first female status Indian registered band member in Canada able to vote in federal elections, which right she proudly exercised. Her compassion is evident in the following extract from her wartime diary, which is still maintained as a treasured heirloom within our extended family today. And this is the entry for Sunday, June the 16th of 1918. My pet patient, Earl King, the boy who had adopted me as his big sister, died this morning at 7.15. He had a hemorrhage at 3.15 in the morning. The poor boy lost consciousness immediately. My heart is broken. I've been crying most of the day and I cannot sleep. Tuesday, June the 18th. After dinner, I went to the florist and ordered flowers for my boy, who had died. At 3 p.m., I went to his funeral. It was pouring rain throughout the whole ceremony, but I didn't mind. At least I paid my last respects to Earl. 
end of quote. Following this sad event, Edith wrote personally to the boy's parents to let them know he was not alone when he died. Following the war, they exchanged visits with Edith traveling to Iowa and Mr. and Mrs. King eventually visiting grandmother at Six Nations. Next slide, please. James Moses, a great uncle of mine, his dates are 1890 to 1918. Employed as a school teacher on the Six Nations Reserve when the Great War began, James Moses served as an infantry officer with Canada's two largely Indigenous formations of the Great War, the 114th Battalion, Brock's Rangers, and the 107th Timberwolf Battalion of the Canadian Expeditionary Force before tra uh, transferring to the Royal Flying Corps in September of 1917. Trained as an air gunner and forward artillery observer with the Royal Flying Corps, Lieutenant Moses was reported missing, later confirmed as killed in action while serving with number 57 squadron on April the 1st of 1918. As April the 1st of 1918 marched the official birth date of the Royal Air Force with the amalgamation that day of the former Royal Naval Air Service and the Royal Flying Corps, one of the first battle casualties of the famed RAF was in fact Lieutenant Moses, a Delaware band member from the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory. Upon receiving word of his son's fate, his father Nelson wrote the following lines in his honor in a poem entitled The Missing Airman. Oh, sometimes yet I feel lonely for him who went away overseas, time's healing wing and time only can soothe the empty heart with ease. That parting hour was hard to bear when we shook hands and said goodbye. Hope alone breathed over our prayers while tears rose up and dimmed each eye. But our mother in sore distress was heard from beyond the restless wave. Her sons faltered not in her stress, it was victory or the grave. Jim sleeps with many comrades brave. Sleep on, your battle is done. No lonely cross will mark the grave where rests the empire's warrior son. Now for full disclosure, both the father Nelson and his son James were active members, leaders in fact, of the De Horner movement to remove the Confederacy chiefs and clan mothers and institute Indian Act style band council elections. So too was another son and younger brother Arnold, whose story, fo whose story follows here. Next slide, please. And Arnold is pictured in the, uh, the center of the photograph here. Originally a family farmhand at Six Nations, Arnold Cornelius Moses, whose dates are 1898 to 1951, served successively with the 114th and 107th Battalion CEF like his older brother before ending the war with the Canadian engineers. He remained active in both the Canadian militia and in elected band council politics during the interwar years. He served as elected band council chief for a two-year term spanning 1949 to 1950. He died in 1951 in his 54th year. Published tributes following his death included the following, which is from the Native Voice, which was a former national um, um, Indigenous publication of the 1950s. This is from the edition of November 1951. The Indians of Canada have lost a wise and good leader in Arnold C. Moses at Ashwigan, Ontario. Truly, he gave his life for the welfare of all Indian people. It was the stress and strain of the long legal battle between the Six Nations and the federal government 
over to their claim to the defunct Grand River Navigation Company and his contributions in pre presenting briefs thereon regarding recent amendments to the Indian Act that sapped his strength and health beyond repair. Born in 1898, Mr. Moses was a member of the Delaware tribe. In 1915, at the age of 17, he joined the Canadian Army, going overseas with the 114th Battalion. In 1919, after three years and three months of service, he was retired from the Royal Canadian Engineers with the rank of Lieutenant. Next slide, please. And this is my maternal great uncle, Gib Montour. His dates were 1895 to 1973. I recall my maternal great uncle, Gib Montour, simply as Uncle Gib, as he was known across our extended family. He was a younger brother to Edith's husband, Claiborne Montour. Edith and Claiborne were my mother's parents and thus my maternal grandparents. I remember Uncle Gibb as a gruff elder with a gallows sense of humor. By the time I can remember him, he was in declining health following a series of heart attacks for which, in his word, the only outcome would be a dose of graveyard mold, end of quote. To give him his due, I will quote from one of the published accounts concerning him, which appeared during his lifetime while he was still in his prime. The following extract is from an article entitled Canadian Metals Expert Montour Aids Malaya. And this was from um, the Indian News, which was the departmental newsletter of the former Indian Affairs branch in the edition dated August 1954. Dr. Montour recently returned from Malaya, where he was on loan from the Canadian government to the International Bank for Reconciliation and Redevelopment. Dr. Montour served as a teacher on his reserve for some time as a youth. He enrolled in Queen's University, but interrupted his studies because of the First World War, enlisting as a gunner in 1917. He later gained an officer's commission with the Canadian Engineers. He returned to his studies after the war and graduated in 1921 with the degrees of Bachelor of Science, majoring in mining and metallurgy. He had continued his military activities in the reserve forces since the First World War, so he was very disappointed at the start of the second to find that an old injury made him unfit for military service. In 1940, his department lent him to the Department of Munitions and Supply as a chief executive assistance to the metals controller. He was made Canadian Executive Officer of the Combined Allied Production and Resources Board in Washington, D.C. His services to the board from 1943 to 1945 were at su of such great importance that he was awarded by being made an officer of the Order of the British Empire. Dr. Montour's outstanding service to Canada, both in war and in peace, has won him national acclaim and the particular pride of his own people. Um, next slide, please. Jess Moses and his dates were 1919 to 2011. A Delaware band member from the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory and a farmer by vocation, my second cousin Jess Moses enlisted with the 11th Canadian Armoured Regiment, the Ontario Regiment, soon after the outbreak of the Second World War. Following initial training in Canada and the United Kingdom, Trooper Moses fought with his unit throughout Sicily, Italy, and Northwest Europe, including the liberation of Belgium and Holland. 
His letters home to his betrothed L. Olive span July the 2nd of 1941 to September the 24th of 1945, beginning in England and ending in Holland. Apparently, I was strictly adhering to wartime censorship rules, just as letters are nearly bereft of any technical or operational details of interest to the military historian, but this is understandable given his recipient and their relationship. He wanted to encourage and support Olive during the forced separation and not to worry her. Nevertheless, the letters and a handful of photographs do provide a snapshot of the daily round and the thoughts and feelings of a young Indigenous serviceman from Canada in the thick of things during wartime. The following is from a letter dated January the 9th of 1944. Dear Olive, I bet my letters have dropped off considerably since last month. There is only one reason for that. Old Jerry was seeing to it that we didn't have time to write. Right now we are having a rest period. I could go on and tell you of stories of what we did and what we saw, but what's the use? All I can say is that we have seen war at its worst. Of being in tight corners, my crew has had its fill. And what he's referring there to is actually the involvement his, of his unit in the Battle of Ortona. Uh, next slide, please. This is Ted Moses, my maternal grandfather, my father's father. His dates were 1900 to 1948. Um, three generations of the Moses family were raised at the Mohawk Indian Residential School in Brantford, Ontario. My great-grandfather, Nelson Moses, was there in the 1880s. My grandfather, Ted, was there in the 1910s. And my late father, Russ, was there in the 1940s. Now, Ted was a welder by trade, and at the outbreak of the Second World War, although deemed too old for service overseas, he was re eagerly recruited as a corporal airframe mechanic by the Royal Canadian Air Force, repairing damaged aircraft at British Commonwealth Air Training Bases across southern Ontario. Apparently unwilling to forego the opportunity of military service during wartime and thus achieve coveted warrior and veteran status, Ted served in this capacity while his wife, my maternal grandmother, Augusta, suffered a mental collapse and was hospitalized, and while his three children, including my father, Russ, were sent to the Mohawk Institute Indian Residential School for the duration of the war and two years beyond. Ted was killed in a car accident soon after the war. Um, next slide, please. My late father, Russ Moses, was born on August the 8th of 1932 and died on the 22nd of May 2013. He and his older brother and a younger sister, Thelma, attended the Mohawk Institute under exceptionally severe wartime and post-war conditions from 1942 to 1947. The Mohawk Institute had de degenerated throughout the decade of the 1920s and the era of the Great Depression. My father and his siblings had the misfortune of being sent there at the height of the Second World War, by which time any pretense towards providing education or vocational training to the children had been abandoned. The Indian children were there to provide the forced agricultural labor necessary to keep the large farm operation going as a contribution to the civilian food production effort on the Canadian home front during the war. As my father recounts in a memoir he wrote in 1965, the senior boys worked on the farm, and I mean we worked hard all the time. We were underfed, exhausted, and ill-clad, and we were out in all types of weather. There is certainly something to be said for Indian stamina. When I was asked to do this paper, I had some misgivings, but if I were to be honest, I must tell of things as they were, and really this is not my story, it's yours. 
uh, final slide, please. So thank you for hearing me out during this recounting of Six Nations oral history and one extended family's traditional knowledge. If any generalizations can be made regarding the spectrum of military service described here, in each instance, I would simply say it was ultimately within the spirit and intent of the original covenant chain wampum belt between the Six Nations Confederacy of Iroquois and allied Indian nations and the British crown thus signifying trading and economic relations during peacetime and military alliance during war. So thank you for your time, Nyawa Goya. I appreciate the platform very much. Thank you. Thanks, uh, thanks John, for sharing your personal history story with our audience. We're gonna circle back at the end for some Q&A to delve into some of those themes. Now we'll hear from Tim O'Lone. Tim, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. And I just want to take a moment, um, <clears throat> um, John, to thank you for your service, your friendship, and uh, you, and to thank your father and his impact on the uh, uh, legacy in this country of residential schools. I, I worked at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as the advisor to the chair, and I want to acknowledge the, um, the Mohawk Institute. I'm aware that it was one of the worst uh, residential schools. Sadly, there was a spectrum within Canada and uh, the legacy of uh, the Mohawk Institute and its trauma, not only to your family, but uh, to uh, other uh, families as well. You know, um, I do not have anything to read. I make notes and um, part of my own personal journey is really to find my authentic voice. Someone that was raised um, to believe I was offside, it took me a long time to realize that I have a voice and that's the, the one that I use now and I'll share that with you. You know, one of the things that I also acknowledge is this is an emotional week, uh, not only for Indigenous veterans, but for all veterans. And I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm uh, just kind of feeling that. And uh, so I may stutter just a bit. Um, and But like I said, it is my authentic voice. I want to explain um, just one thing, because sometimes people ask the question, why November 8th? Why do not Indigenous veterans celebrate uh, on November 11th? Well, first of all, we did. But the journey of this country is one for Indigenous peoples, one of exclusion. And so Indigenous veterans uh, quietly uh, celebrated November 8th. It started in uh, Manitoba. And um, just because uh, of the exclusionary nature for Indigenous peoples and Indigenous veterans, we saw it as our sacred day. It has since grown to the national stage, but it was not because we split away uh, on um, uh, this week. It was because we were excluded uh, from, um, uh, from the national kind of uh, stage on, on uh, November 11th. We still participate. I'm actually missing a, a ceremony from downtown uh, Ottawa right now, but I will certainly every November 11th and this Saturday, um, I will be uh, laying a wreath on behalf of First Nation veterans along with the National Chief. I had mentioned before I was the advisor to the chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. My, it has changed my life, uh, both good, bad and ugly. I fell to a severe PTSD as a result of my journey and just listening to some pretty horrific stories. But I was very grateful for Veterans Affairs and their immense amount of support that it has for veterans. It was embarrassing for the Crown, and I, John and I reference, uh, it's not Government of Canada, it is the highest level, which is the Crown. It was, an, you know, and, and the Crown did not respond to uh, veterans' uh, needs. 
especially since the 1990s and uh, into the 2000s. And it really had to get ahead of the curve just to save the lives of many veterans that have fallen to uh, PTSD as a result of their service. I was very grateful for uh, the supports, um, but as part of my journey, I also realized that the supports that the Crown had uh, uh, traumatized, um, you know, the Indigenous populations. And so for me, that's something that I'm not really comfortable with. I was very grateful for the supports, but I acknowledge um, and we can see, um, you know, many Indigenous peoples as a result of residential schools and other policies find themselves on the streets. And for me, that doesn't uh, really sit comfortably. And I'm going to continue to do some work to make sure, because there is a model from Veterans Affairs, to make sure that there's um, some amazing supports uh, for uh, those that uh, continue their uh, journey of trauma, unprocessed trauma, um, especially with the Indigenous population. So I kind of want to acknowledge one of the things that I do uh, talk about is that I do feel that this country needs just a bit more empathy. You know, for those of us that are in a privileged state, um, I now, like I said, when I see someone on the street, I now realize that's unprocessed trauma. And the Indigenous population that is on the street, I realize that's unprocessed trauma. Um, and I will do everything that I can in moving forward um, to ensure that we have uh, the supports. Like I said, I do believe that this country just kind of needs to create a bit more space filled with empathy for those that may be uh, struggling. One of the things I was taking notes as John was sharing, and um, you know, World War II, World War I gave women the vote in Canada. World War II, because Canada went off, or the Crown went off and uh, fought you know, this uh, Nazi regime, and appropriately so, with its allies, defeated uh, this Nazi regime based on racial superiority. Canada, or the, uh, the Crown, when it came back and realized, hmm, a treatment of indigenous population Maybe it was based on racial superiority. So that's really laid the foundation for the 1950 Indian Act amendments that made it okay or not illegal to practice uh, uh, our language, our culture, celebrations uh, such as powwows and the potlatch on the West Coast, and just uh, kind of laid the foundation for the eventual vote in 1960 for treaty Indians. And so that was the positive nature but one of the things when I heard the story of uh, after World War II, of course, people came back and, um, you know, the uh, the Legion provided supports for, for veterans. You know, it would happen to be an establishment that served alcohol as well. At that time, Indigenous peoples were not allowed into establishments that served alcohol. So one of the sad legacies is that, you know, the Indigenous population that served along with their non-Indigenous friends and brothers in arms were not allowed in. And one of the things about the uh, um, the Legion was that's where a lot of medals were given to, uh, to these heroes. And uh, sadly, um, they would do that to, in ceremony and then would have to go into the back, uh, the back parking lot where the treaty Indians were and uh, give them their, their medals kind of out of the back, uh, you know, through the kitchen kind of back doorway and that was really something that uh that you know that's just a bit of our sad legacy you know one of the things and i think about this and i want to honor the incredible hero named tommy prince and he served uh in my regiment the ppcli princess patricia's canadian light infantry when i joined and got into the uh to the regiment there were still stories of his heroism 
I often realize because there's a term in the military called a 10 year uh, tenure sergeant, and that takes 10 years to get for someone to get the expertise. And I realized a lot of indigenous peoples that were born and raised in, in the bush uh, had that 10 years experience of hunting and trapping, stalking, um, you know, animals that was easily transferred to the military. And so often these uh, heroes would have that 10 years of experience and that kind of in many ways made them uh, but much more advanced in their uh, military skills than those that were uh, joining. So it was that took me a while to realize that. You know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I just kind of want to honor is that, you know, Tommy uh, Prince, uh, sadly, and I think it was because of mental health, there were no supports for someone like him. For the Indigenous population that had treaty often would lose their treaty as a result of their military status. We're not allowed to go back home to their home reserves. And because there was very limited supports for them, would often end up finding on the streets. And I'm really sorry to share with you that Tommy Prince died on the streets in Winnipeg after uh, his military service, his uh, unhealthy relationship uh, with alcohol. I since realized I cannot judge anyone that may have because someone with uh, mental health may turn to the bottle or drugs just to tap down their trauma. I also realized because that was a bit of my journey that there is something called uh, healthy, um, healthy uh, uh, self-care. And of course, that's 20 second hugs, uh, walks, praying to your God, whoever he or she is literally going for a walk, dogs love 20 second hugs. And so I really encourage people, if they consider that's part of their journey, I will be definitely going for a walk after this, because like I said, it's uh, I, I will need this whole week to do uh, a lot of uh, self-care. You know, one of the sad legacy and um, also is, you know, for those that uh, are a bit older, um, in 1990, a, a sad chapter, and this is uh, has impacted uh, uh, John's home community as well, was the sad uh, legacy around the Oka crisis. I was in service in the military um, <clears throat> in which the prime minister of the day called out the military um, during the Oka crisis. And for an indigenous person that was serving at the time, you see, when you're in the infantry, you are trained to believe the other person on the other side of your weapon is the enemy. And for the indigenous population that was in service, I was interviewed because my unit was one of the next units to go. And for me, it was uh, it was a very difficult time in my life because I could not imagine if I was called out to have to uh, go and point my weapon against my own people. I know that there are people that was supposed, those uh, uh, indigenous uh, soldiers were supposed to go out. And of course they would, you know, they would, uh, um, you know, uh, supposed to show up the next morning for, for parade and, uh, you know, just to have those soldiers no longer there because of course they could never take uh, arms up against their own people. And it was just a sort of sad uh, part of our Canadian history. I lived it and it was the seed that really kind of allowed me to, uh, to start thinking about the institution is wasn't the institution that I joined. One of the things that uh, as part of my journey, uh, when I fell to uh, mental health in 2015, 16 and 17, I was in the Valley of Darkness. I was very grateful for the uh, supports Veterans Affairs gave me. Um, 
And as part of my journey, I applied for the Invictus Games in 2018. I was selected as part of this is Prince Harry's legacy. Uh, so, uh, very pleased to have been uh, uh, taken uh, as part of Team Canada, went to Sydney, Australia. And it was a big part of me coming out of the Valley of Darkness because I once again had a mission. I also had to eat crow because I sat with a lot of heroes and really kind, loving human beings. All of us either had a physical and or a mental injury. So in some way, uh, we were, um, I was uh, comforted by the fact that we all had very similar lived experiences. And that was the sacredness of the circle of, uh, for the Invictus Games. You know, um, I am also really pleased to have supported True Patriot Love Foundation in their bid for the 2025 Olympic Games in Vancouver. And they had just um received the uh um you know the um the announcement that uh in Vancouver is uh, going is now host with the four first nations the four nations in in and around Vancouver and uh I'm going to be applying and uh I hope that uh I I get selected again because I would love to participate again it was healthy for me and I also realized the healthiness of of uh, sports um, but um, we will keep our fingers crossed. If I don't get selected, I will definitely be going out to Vancouver to volunteer and just kind of sit with my own. And, uh, you know, my journey is uh, I've walked um, my journey with heroes, uh, not only with survivors, including my mom and my grand and my grandfather, but uh, in witnessing amazing stories of resilience for uh, not only um, uh, survivors or residential schools, but also with veterans and folks like John. I, uh, I'm very comforted by the fact that, uh, and I do wanna say thank you for giving me space to be able to share a bit of my story, for giving me space to, uh, and a safe space for me to, to share my authentic voice. You know, one of the things that I realized is um, in 2018, uh, after the Invictus Games, I had applied to uh, to go to a uh, Indigenous healing camp because I needed my culture to heal. I was denied. They said, we can only send you to a mental health facility that's supervised by a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And I said, uh, okay, it had limited success, but I thought Veterans Affairs needs to do better. Indigenous peoples need our culture to heal. So I've been advocating since then that not an, another Indigenous veteran will be sent to a non-Indigenous facility that we would need to do better in allowing Indigenous peoples to go to a place like a healing camp so that we can sit in our culture and heal. And so we're not out of the woods yet. We need to do more. Veterans Affairs needs to do more on the Indigenous side. Um, but I certainly hope that uh, we can uh, continue to improve one of the messages that I do share with people is that, you know, I do think Canada needs to provide just a more, a bit more empathy, not only for those that are struggling on the Indigenous side, because it was the crown that wounded us, it is the crown that needs to provide supports in allowing us to heal, surrounded by our own culture. I do want to say, Masi Cho, I will be doing self-care. I do encourage, because the reality is, in a room of 100 people, there is unprocessed trauma. And I do want to encourage people to consider healthy self-care as they move forward. And that is things like a 20-second hug with someone that they love, go walking a dog, things like that versus unhealthy self-care. And it really does uh, pay, pay things forward. 
Masi Cho, I want to say thank you. John, thank you for your service and your friendship. Thank you to your family's commitment to the crown. It goes back so long. I'm just humbled to share the circle with you and the amazing people at the Empire Club of Canada. And I want to say Masi Cho, and I know there's times for questions. I want to say thank you so much. I'm humbled to be here. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tim. As we uh, bring John back into the conversation, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, how is the military different today than when you served from 1983 to 1993? Well, I, I, I did have to eat crow. Um, I, I did have to humble myself. When I was selected for the Invictus Games, I part of me, I was just going to do it on my own. It was there was a lot of racism in the military during that time. And I really wanted to demonize everyone on that team because of their service, because I really struggled. I do acknowledge that I, I sat in a circle with some amazing human beings. And I acknowledge that it is a different military now than it was the military left in 1993. And I'm humbled that I, uh, I um, met some amazing people and I still continue my friendship with them. So it is more reflective of the population that it serves uh, now than it was back then. And uh, so that was a, a big uh, thing for me and when I served on the, when I was on the Invictus team. Thanks, uh, John. You know, Tim mentioned the differences in military from 1980 and now. And if we step back in time, what would motivate Indigenous persons to serve during the era of the two world wars, uh, the Korean, especially considering their political and economic circumstances at home? Well, like I said, I think the the individual motivations varied greatly, spanning the the personal or the material to the to to the political and perhaps like a um you know a, a great proportion of the canadian population at large during those time periods of the 19 teens and then again during the the 1940s people in uh, on an individual level people were motivated by the perceived material benefits of you know food and clothing and shelter and all the rest of it regular payment um but individually amongst the six nations and amongst indigenous peoples in general, the the decision whether or not to serve, it was never undertaken lightly and it was hugely divisive. And even within individual communities, you found a broad range of responses, um, again, ranging from the material to the political and certainly for the six nations, a lot of them, um, you know, were anticipating a victorious peacetime during the First World War, that would one that would come sooner rather than later. So they shared that view with many Canadians at large. And the thinking was that was the, you know, the come that Victoria victorious peacetime, the fact of their recent military service overseas could be leveraged politically to help continue to advocate for the cause of Indigenous and Six Nations rights come peacetime. So I think that was some of what was at play at Six Nations anyways. Thanks, John. You know, um, and Tim, you know, thinking about what John just mentioned regarding motivation to serve, can you expand on what motivated you and what was the biggest impact your military service had on you today? Yeah, no problem. Um, and and I will just add to John's point, and and especially because I come from the Numbered Treaty in the Northwest Territories, Treaty Eight and Treaty Eleven, but certainly the Numbered Treaties in Western Canada. Uh, many joined because we had treaties with the Crown, and that was uh, a major. Uh, influence on people joining 
And uh, if you ask many of them, they'd be like, because we have treaties, especially in Saskatchewan, there was one community in which every able-bodied male joined the military. And a strong number of that is just simply because we have treaties with the Crown. And that was just uh, the Indigenous fulfillment of that. For me, um, I was a, a young child. I was uh, raised in not uh, very good uh, circumstances. A portion of that because my uh, brother went off and joined. And um, I. Uh, it was part of me was to get away from a, a tough situation at home. Um, in some parts, because of the racism, I jumped from the pot into the fire. But um, for me, in part of my healing journey, I was kind of trying to displace the negativity that was uh, perpetrated upon me. Um, and just to think and honor now that I look back at the amazing friends and uh, that I served with. I think of uh, people that, uh, for me this week, I think of uh, some of the heroes that are no longer uh, with me. And uh, I think of, uh, you know, a, a friend of mine, Jim DeCoste, who, uh, who sadly passed on September 9th. September 20th, 1993. He was a hero of mine. And it's people like that that I think about the heroes that I served with. So it was a difficult childhood. And part of me was just trying to get away from that and uh, join, join the military, got me out of the house. And I saw the world. I was posted over to Europe. And I um, did training with uh, the French Foreign Legion and, and other amazing training opportunities. And I do have to acknowledge who I am today is in a big part because I'm in military service. So I'm trying to uh, look at things in a healthy way. And I think of Jim often. Thanks for, for sharing. Uh, John, you know, I've heard that in the case of Canadian Indians subject to the Indian Act, they, they actually had to renounce their legal Indian status and band membership to enlist. Is this correct? And can you speak a bit more about this? Um, yes, apparently that did happen in some situations. And what we have to recall, both at the time of the First World War and the time of the Second World War, um, military recruiters, individual recruiting officers and NCOs had a tremendous amount of latitude in interpreting the enlistment, enlistment regulations as, as they understood them to be. And uh, apparently, um, in some areas of the country during both the First World War and the Second World War, some status Indian registered band members were told by their military recruiters that come the peacetime, and again, come the victorious peacetime that nobody doubted, um, veterans benefits can only be made payable to Canadian citizens. And to the extent that neither in the First World War nor in the Second World War were Canadian Indians considered to be full Canadian citizens, they were essentially legal wards of the Crown. So having been provided that information, um, in some areas, in some cases, indeed, the individual um, Indigenous enlistee undertook to renounce their legal Indian status and ban membership, but that didn't happen all the time everywhere. Like at Six Nations, that was never the case at the Six Nations, the Grand River. And, you know, again, there were, there was a movement afoot to recruit an entire Six Nations regiment. They never actually quite achieved that, but one of Canada's two largely Indigenous formations of the Great World of the First World War was the 114th Battalion, Brock's Rangers, that was raised in and around the Six Nations Reserve, and then the 107th Battalion that was raised in and around Winnipeg, Manitoba. Um, in those situations, to um, the individual soldiers were never called upon to surrender their band membership. So the only thing I can say was that that was not, if it occurred elsewhere, it was not the case with uh, Six Nations troops during the First World War. Thanks. 
you. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Uh, we've got questions also coming in from from the audience, and so I want to balance a little bit, and so I'll just move there. Um, here's a question: How do you envisage the future of healing PTSD and intergenerational trauma for our Indigenous veterans? That is uh, not an easy question to answer. You know, one of the things, and it's a bit of my journey as well, a bit of journey of shame, is people, sometimes people have tried to rid themselves of their indigeneity. And so in many respects, some people are on their own learning journey about their own culture. Some people are trying to learn their language and learn the, um, you know, what is uh, safe for them within uh, to, to, to heal. And I'm, I'm part of that culture as well. My, my language was taken from my mom and she never passed it on to me. She was only 14 when she had me. Um, but uh, all that to say is I know there's a foundation. If someone chooses to be able to, uh, to heal surrounded in their culture. And I think Veterans Affairs needs to do much better about that. But if that's if they so choose, uh, if someone is uh, comfortable with going off to mental health facilities like Bellwood in Toronto, that's okay too. But for me, I uh, it was not an option. I wanted it, and I wanted to make sure that that would never happen again with any future um, uh, someone that may be uh, dealing with uh, their mental health to be able to be surrounded in their culture. It's Tim. We're, we're nearing the top of the hour uh, uh, and um, uh, almost close to time. So uh, I, I wanted to ask one last question. And first and foremost, I want to thank you both very much for sharing your personal stories and knowledge here with us today. But uh, before we end, uh, I'd like to hear from both of you, because this is Remembrance Week. Who are you thinking of and remembering? Tim? <laughs> uh I walked a journey with many heroes. And uh, I think of uh, Jim DeCoste, if people want to Google his name, and uh, so many others as well. So I generally try to put my level to the universe and uh, think in honor of them. But I, I also know that there's so many that are, uh, that I don't know that are struggling with her mental health, maybe in the basement. And I just hope that this country offers just a bit more empathy for those that are have a, a silent wound. And uh, so I think about all of those. But on uh, Remembrance Day, I try to look into the faces that are those are marching and just to give them a mo moment of dignity. And I try to thank as many as possible. So that's what I do. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Whew. Mm -hmm. John? And yeah, I think in my own case at all, you know, it always circles back to my father, Russ. Um, he, notwithstanding the tragic circumstances of his residential school upbringing, my father refused to be defined by his residential school experience. He never, he, he never hit it, but neither did he dwell upon it beyond the circumstances of his childhood. He was a, a decorated naval veteran of the Korean War, an Air Force veteran of the, of the Cold War, and as I say, you know, an accomplished public um, public servant. But most important, he was an important, he was a, a loving and caring family man and a friend to so many. And um, yeah, you know, I knew him personally. He's the man that raised me 
and um, he, you know, I'll just leave it there. He refused to be defined by his residential school experience. That was sort of an episode of his life almost. That was how to say it, like in brackets. He he would want to be remembered as a proud naval veteran, and that's how I choose to remember him too. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. Uh, both, uh, we appreciate your time, Tim O'Lone and John Moses. Thank you. As a club of record, all Empire Club of Canada events are available to watch and listen to on demand on our website. The recording of this event will be available shortly, and everyone registered will receive an email with the link. On Thursday, November the 23rd, join us in person to celebrate the Empire Club's 120th anniversary, a tribute to the club's history, which began in 1903. You'll hear some of the magic moments in the thousands of speeches delivered at the club over the past 12 decades and some of the iconic stories behind these moments. On Thursday, November the 30th, join us in person to hear from Federal Labor Minister Seamus O'Regan Jr. for an economic update on the state of labor relations in Canada. Thank you for joining us today. I wish you all the best today. This meeting is now adjourned.